You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and this week uh, we're going to answer a question. Is young age creationism pseudoscience? Is young age creationism pseudoscience? Now this is probably one of the most frequent charges that we get as uh, what I call young age creationists, or uh, it's probably more commonly known as young earth creationism, recent creationism, whatever you want to call it, we are um, all of the time being told that we are just uh, doing pseudoscience and that we are peddling pseudoscience, especially guys like me. And, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I'm trying to get uh, the information out there to as many people as possible. And, um, you know, people don't like that, uh, if we're just being honest. Uh, people are not happy with that. Um, and one of the reasons that they're not happy with it is that they think that what we have is pseudoscience. Now, I should say that we're not alone in this charge. I find it interesting that those in the um, old age camp especially those even who are in the intelligent design uh, camp. And if you know what I'm talking about, there's a bit of a difference between old earth creationism and intelligent design proper, you know, capital intelligent design. Um, those guys are like Stephen Meyer, Jonathan Wells, um, and that crowd. Now, What's interesting is if you go look at some of their, uh, like if, you're, if you just look at them up on, on the internet, um, especially like in Wikipedia, which of course is not a trustworthy source by any means, uh, because anybody can edit it, um, and it's curated to an extent, but, but not really. Anyway, if you'll go look up um, some of their information and look on Wikipedia or somewhere, it's actually going to call them pseudoscientists as well. And what's really interesting is, is that they um, really don't take any kind of a stand as far as the dating or anything else in Genesis. I mean, honest to goodness, their beef is really just with evolution. And yet uh, they are also getting this label of pseudoscientist. So um, in, in some sense, we are just... Um, you know, the scum of the earth, uh, to say it one way, uh, because we have uh, multiple different areas where we would disagree widely with the mainstream scientific interpretation. And yet, I really do feel like um, our interpretation, for the most part, um, is the one that is most, most faithful to Scripture. Now, there are some um, who have... Uh, brought some ideas in that I don't think are scriptural ideas, um, but for the most part, what, what what the majority of young age creationists uh, teach and and believe and affirm, uh, I most certainly think is most faithful to scripture. So there seems to be, I guess my point is that there seems to be this wide chasm, uh, of course, between what we believe and between what the mainstream scientists believe, but even those who have... Um, taken a different approach to scripture, an approach that I would argue is is not scriptural, I find it interesting that even they are being labeled as pseudoscientists, and even the intelligent design camp, who, um, they, they some of them are Christian, some of them aren't Christians, it, it's really not um, a, a Christian um, camp necessarily, okay? Um, some of them are Christians, some of them are not. They are just simply looking to... Um, affirm that uh, what we see cannot be the product of blind random chance acting over time. It is most um, certainly a product of design. And so that's all they're set out to prove, and even they are labeled pseudoscientists. So, I mean, um, do I think that this is going to be the most convincing podcast um, answering this question? Well, uh, probably not. It might not get very far, but uh, nevertheless, I want you to be confident as a young earth creationist that... Um, what we do is not pseudoscience, despite what anybody says. Um, and then if you happen to send this podcast to somebody else, maybe maybe somebody is charging you against, you know, char charging you of, of being a pseudoscientist or being somebody who subscribes to pseudoscience. Um, maybe you send them this way 
and they take a look at um, at, at this podcast, take a listen, and, and maybe they can make a different judgment for themselves. So here's what I want to kind of argue, and, and I do want to um, digress here in just a moment and talk about uh, a recent film that my, my wife and I had the chance to watch. But um, in any sense, what I want to argue today is essentially that young age creationism is not pseudoscience, and it, it differs from the mainstream interpretation of science in, in four probably distinct ways, and they all start with a D, and they're all very easy to remember. Um, and I even think that you could be able to possibly articulate this easily when you're in a conversation with somebody and says, you know, isn't young earth creationism or young age creationism just pseudoscience? I think using the information that I'm going to give you today, you could... Um, refute that notion. Okay. So that's what I want to, to, to show you today. Before we get into that, uh, I wanted to, uh, to, to put out a few comments on a recent movie that my wife and I watched called the riot and the dance. Now the riot and the dance is a, uh, nature documentary film with a Christian emphasis, um, with a Christian emphasis from a biologist, Dr. Gordon Wilson. And my wife and I were actually recently given the opportunity to pre-screen this. Now you are hearing this actually a week or two after um, it, it, it has been in the theaters. So this is not going to be a, a pre-movie review for you. This is actually going to be a post-movie review. However, uh, it could still be useful whenever they uh, put it out on DVD. I'm sure most of the major creationist organizations are probably going to carry it. So um, you may want to pick it up on DVD. And so if that's the case, I want you to know what to expect. So overall... It was really, really good. Now, I should say, my wife and I love nature documentaries. We watch them all the time, and that might make us uh, old, but hey, you know what? Um, uh, we really like them, and um, there's something to be said for David Attenborough's voice. I hate that the man is an evolutionist and a naturalist uh, because he is just, uh, he articulates the information so well. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of wish that he was somebody we had fighting for our team. Um but anyway, uh, I, I digress on that. Um, for the most part, this was a really, really good um, documentary. Now, I have a few thoughts on it, though. Um, I, I, again, it was excellent. I really thought that the information was presented pretty well. Obviously, um, Dr. Wilson is both passionate about um, about serving the Lord and about spreading the message of creation. And he's obviously very knowledgeable, um, on his topic. I mean, he, he was able to, uh, again, articulate the information that they presented uh, pretty well. Um, there were a few issues just with the, uh, presentation of it in general. And now kind of as a, uh, precaution here, uh, just to kind of sidestep this a little bit. I mean, I realize that um, this is not going to compare in quality, and you should realize this as well. It's not going to be a fair comparison in quality to something like the Planet Earth series or the Blue Planet series um, that BBC puts out. And uh, this is just simply a budget thing. I mean, there is absolutely no way that these guys have, have near the money uh, to put into the production that uh, the BBC, for example, does. So um, while the screen quality is great and the narrating is pretty good as well, it's just simply not going to be the same exact uh, experience as you would get if you were, um, you know, looking at something like Planet Earth. However, I will say this. It was... Um, a great effort and a good step forward in that direction. It was awesome to see a Christian representation of of the world uh, from that perspective. And again, the camera work was great. The images were beautiful. Um, one thing I liked is they actually spent a, a lot more time on like reptiles and things than you normally see spent um, in some of the other bigger production series like Planet Earth and such. Uh, they spent a lot of time with snakes, and that was interesting. Um, to be honest with you, uh, there might <laughs> there might have been a few too many snakes. Um, they, they seem to focus in on that theme a lot. I'm not sure if that's just because that's a really um, a, a close area of Dr. Wilson's study or something. I'm I'm not sure. Um, but in any sense, there was a lot of snakes, a lot of reptiles and and, and lizards and um, things like that. And it was really 
Um, it was really, really cool. I think the narration could have been slower. I think uh, it, it felt a little rushed to me. Um, and I also think that the, the music, it was kind of repetitive, and it was certainly not scored to match the scenes. And now I'm a musician, so I might notice this quicker than somebody else would. Um, but my wife is not a musician, and she noticed this as well, actually before I even said anything about it. And essentially, the, the music just doesn't really seem to match what's actually happening on the screen. And that doesn't sound like a big deal just saying it, but to me, it's really noticeable when you're actually watching it, uh, especially if you're use, used to watching these other nature documentaries where you really see the, um, it, it's really part of the overall effect that the music matches what's happening on the screen qu quite well, and it kind of ebbs and flows with um, the kind of information that you're seeing. And of course, there's, you know, science behind that, <laughs> okay, and, and just from an artistic perspective, that's a really good, a really good thing. Um, and so that was kind of missing from this. I also think, um, this is going to kind of be the last thought I'll give you on this, but I think it could have been more apologetics driven. And I don't know if this was the intent or not of the film. I don't know if this film was meant to speak more directly to the unbelievers or more directly to believers. Um, I'm just not sure. The name to me is a very unchristian, Christianese name. In other words, it sounds to me like it might have been named that way in order to attract unbelievers. But at the same time, I think that it's such an intriguing name with really no other explanation that if anybody had looked it up for just a moment, they would probably find that it was a Christian film and maybe not have went. So I'm not really sure how that all worked out. That doesn't really answer the question for me. Um, so I'm not sure if it was directed towards believers or unbelievers. But if it was directed towards unbelievers, I think there was a couple missed opportunities in apologetics. Um, there were some Bible verses quoted, right? And, and there was a little bit of correlation reference made between, you know, the natural world and um, and the Bible. I mean, that that element of it was certainly there. But I don't think it was carried out from a very apologetics standpoint. In other words, it was um, it was the way it was presented was definitely something that all believers, especially young age creationists, would understand. But I'm not so sure that an unbeliever would have understood the concepts in the same way. I think that things could have been explained a little better to say, look, this is this is um, how our worldview makes sense of this, and 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 this is why that you know, whatever animal is, the way that it is. Um, and and this is a result of the fall or the cur you know, just 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 kind of taking it um, one step further and going out of our way to explain our worldview a little better. Um, I think that would have been a good move. Now I realize you only have a limited amount of time to accomplish what you want to accomplish and you got to keep everybody's attention going while you do it keep things exciting I mean I understand that so um, I'm not saying in this case that I could have done a better job I'm just saying looking from the outside in I'm not sure who the intended audience was but if it was unbelievers I think there might have been a missed opportunity or two so that's all I have to say uh, about that look overall it was a really really good movie I would highly recommend it. I think you should see it. It was great. Um, if you're if you're one that does not, you know, r religiously, so to speak, watch um, nature documentaries, you might be fine. You know what I mean? You you might not even notice a lot of what I what I just said just watching it. Um, but again, as somebody who is into that stuff, you know, and, and watches it quite regularly. I, I definitely have uh, a little bit more of a critique to give it, and so I critiqued it based on that. So I hope you enjoy it if you get it. Um, maybe they'll make it available to download online or something like that. I'm not exactly sure. But uh, yeah, The Riot and the Dance by Dr. Gordon Wilson. They've actually got a... Um, an ocean-based one coming up. It's in the works. I, I, I don't know if it's um, set for 2019 or 2020 um, or if it's even for sure happening yet, but they've already got some of the um, camera work. It looks like done for it. They've got a preview out for it, and so that looks really, really exciting as well. And I think uh, right now, working title is just The Ride and the Dance too. Um, I think. So I'll be looking out for that. All right, so is young age creationism pseudoscience?
there are four areas where I think that we could answer this question and attempt to show that it is not pseudoscience. Now, I'm going to speak to this a little bit more in depth in a minute, but but here's kind of the gist that this whole podcast is going to lead up to, and 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 you could characterize it this way: something is not pseudoscience or pseudoscientific in virtue of the fact that it disagrees with the majority view. Something is not pseudoscience in virtue of the fact that it disagrees with the majority view. Now, we're going to talk about that more in depth here in just a minute, but I want you to just have that in mind. Um, A lot of times when somebody makes the claim that young age creationism is pseudoscience, now this is not every time, but a lot of times when somebody makes that claim, they are basing it on secondhand information at best. At best, it is secondhand information. They've gone online. They've, they, they follow people who regularly call us out. Or they go to a blog and they, uh, they, they, they see, look, this is something where the claim should be evaluated on its own merit. It's not pseudoscience just because it disagrees with the majority. And as a matter of fact, to claim that that is the case would actually be a logical fallacy. Everything should be evaluated on its own merit. Now, that being said, let me offer one more disclaimer. I'm cognizant of the fact that 97 to actually the the most recent number I heard was 99, and that could be true in the grand scheme of things, but somewhere between 97 and 99% of the scientists in the entire world are Darwinian evolutionists. Think about that. What is most certainly the case is that there are countries in the world where their scientists have just never heard of young age creationism. It is just simply not a thing. They would they would immediately dismiss it as ridiculous because all they know is old age um, evolutionism. That's that's literally all they know. This has not even been given a second thought. And I've had somebody use that against me in sort of a you know naturalism apologetic sort of way to say, look, you know, you're what you believe is ridiculous. Um, most of the world doesn't even know about this. Well, a lot of the world doesn't even have the Bible. If the whole world had the Bible, they would know about it. So that's, you know, that's the goal, really, is to get the Bible into the whole world and, uh, and let them know about, um, about who created them. Let them know about the God who, who was there and who created them in his image. And so ultimately the solution to that problem is simply spreading the gospel. And that's what we want to do. Um, but again, we want to use this creation story to teach the world about God. And so here are the, the, the four areas. I'll run through them real quick, and then we're going to look at them more in depth. It's four Ds, I think, that, that, that really you could say separate us um, from the mainstream scientific conclusions. And I think we can prove that we have something scientific to say in each of these areas. The first is dinosaurs. That's pretty obvious. Now, the reason I specifically mention this is because dinosaurs are something that really, really appeal to children. And so both creationists and evolution tend to use this notion of dinosaurs uh, to argue for their side. And so I think it's a point worth going ahead and, 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 and mentioning the differentiation on because when people hear that you think that dinosaurs were created and lived around 6,000 years ago, you're probably going to get some crazy looks because one of the first books, no doubt, that they read in their entire life started out with millions of years ago and began talking about dinosaurs. I mean, that that is just, that is the way of thinking about it. All right, the second thing we differ on is a deluge. A deluge, which is um, a flood, simply that a a a a global flood. In this case, um, there's huge disagreement there. 
right? Nobody thinks a global flood happened. As a matter of fact, uh, just yesterday, I took a listen to a new apologetics podcast that just came out, and I was really intrigued. Um, One of the episodes was, how can a rational person believe that Noah's flood, or the story of Noah's Ark, I forget how they put it, actually happened? How can a rational person believe such a thing? And I was really hopeful for what the host had to say, but he brought somebody in and he brought in a philosopher who he he claimed had no training in this area, um, but brought him in just because he's a really smart guy and a Christian and wanted to know what he thought about this. Well, it turns out that the guy, and no criticism against him, but, but you know, I mean, it turns out that he's not a biblical inerrantist. He um, didn't say this in these in so many words, but his 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 point was that basically that a rational person has to explain it away in light of other information. In other words, a rational person really couldn't believe in Noah's flood as presented at face value in the Bible because it appears to be irrational. But it only appears to be irrational if you assume an evolutionary long age worldview. It, it, it doesn't appear irrational whatsoever if you just take the text at face value, start from there, and look at the world. We have a world full of fossils. Fossils get fossilized by being buried rapidly. Anyway, we know this, okay? But anyway, um, the, how can a rational person believe Noah's flood? Well, the Bible seems to give us the only way that we can know at all that we can even be rational people. The Christian worldview accounts for the idea of the laws of logic, the laws of uh, uh, the idea that we can even be rational human beings is only possible in a Christian worldview. So therefore, I think we should take what the Bible has to say about the world. Um, All wisdom is found in Christ. Remember that fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's also the beginning of wisdom as we find in Proverbs. And so if, 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 if that starts with the Lord, then I think that we're best to trust what the Lord has to say about the history of our earth. We don't have to assume these long-age timelines. But anyway, this is one big difference. Okay, another big difference is in the dating. Where um, do we get the notion that there's only 6,000 years separated, uh, around 6,000 years, a little over 6,100, separated from the beginning of the whole creation of the universe to where we are now? We're only about that long away. How do we get that idea when everybody else says that the universe began 13.8 billion years ago? Huge gap. Huge gap. And then finally, the last thing is Darwin. Of course, we differ on the idea of Darwinian evolution. And there's, again, there's um, a lot of definitions that we're going to have to go through to to really get to the bottom of this. And we're going to have to take a close look at it in order to understand why we see the world differently in these four areas. So why don't we start back at the top, looking at dinosaurs, looking at dinosaurs. So what what do we believe about the dinosaurs? Well, a, a few things are pretty clear. First of all, it appears that the dinosaurs were indeed created on day six. Now, again, your worldview here is going to heavily influence your interpreta- your interpretation, excuse me, of the available dinosaur evidence. Now, Here's the thing. There is a couple ways of looking at information, especially as presented in the Bible, that I think most people don't really think about. And this is not necessarily the way that I would approach it, but I think it's the way that people who are skeptical of the Bible's information, especially those who are Christians and skeptical about things, let's just call it what it is, like in Genesis 1 um, through 11, where I, I think they should give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. Now, for me, now for me, I work the other way. For Well, I don't work the other way, but, but I do this differently. In other words, I, um, maybe it's just, you know, childlike faith or whatever you want to say, but I have faith that the Bible is true from the very, very first word. And so my conviction would be that whatever we see in the natural world must 
must match up and conform to what is presented in the Bible. Because in my opinion, the Bible presents irrefutable proof. And somebody might say, well, but 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 there's a natural theology, right? There's there's a, a revelation of God in nature. And I would agree with that. But ultimately, we could never know that that revelation was from God unless we had the Bible to tell us about that biblical God. Now, again, there's a whole lot of theology that goes in behind that. Romans 1 might have some things to say about that. We actually uh, mentioned that briefly the other week, okay? But in a, in, a, in a strict sense, nobody could ever know that the, um, that the Bible was the revelation that we had from God, um, the biblical God anyway, if it weren't for the fact that the Bible has revealed that fact to us. Um, and so that's where I stand on that issue. Now, because of that, I think the Scripture is our ultimate authority. Well, that's not the only reason, but that's one reason where I think the Scripture is our ultimate authority. I think that anything we see in nature is going to need to conform to what the Bible says about it. Anything that the Bible speaks to, in other words, the Bible's right. That's the way I would look at it. And I start from there. This is a presuppositional approach. But I think that even if you don't look at it this way, if you're a Christian, I think that the experience, especially of the Holy Spirit, um, bearing witness to your spirit, I mean, that, 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 that faith that you acted, that, that you now know that you are a Christian. By the way, God never says that you are probably going to be a Christian. There is not a high probability that God exists. There is not a high probability that you're a Christian. You can know, you can be certain both that God exists and that you are a Christian. You can know that you know that you know that you know, as my uh, old preacher used to say. Now, I think, though, that if you're a Christian and you're skeptical about the views of Genesis 1 through 11, I think the Bible should be given the benefit of the doubt. Now, there's a, a kind of a principle in play when you're evaluating um, Bible contradictions where you should give, um, based on what we know uh, about what the Bible claims about itself and also about what, um, as Christians, we have experienced um, God's personal um, touch and personal working in our lives, okay, there is a element there where we should give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. In other words, if somebody predicts, um, or, not, or not predicts, but presents us with what looks like a Bible contradiction, it appears to me that we don't just throw our hands up and say, oh, look, well, there's a Bible contradiction. The whole thing must be thrown out. Uh, it's not clear to me that that's the, the route we should take. It looks to me that if somebody presents to you an alleged Bible contradiction, you are at least subconsciously or implicitly, you're going to give the Bible the benefit of the doubt and try to resolve that in any way you possibly can. What I want to know is why is this principle not being put in play on issues like this? Why... Why is it so much to ask to say, look, if it appears that dinosaurs, for example, were made on day six, why is it too much to ask that we give the Bible the benefit of the doubt on that and say, look, is there any evidence at all that would suggest that the Bible, that, that, that dinosaurs were indeed younger than the mainstream interpretation gives? In other words, is there, is there any way to start with the Bible's timeline and interpret the evidence in such a way that it makes sense? Now, I think where the problem would be is if there is no way to reconcile that. Now, understanding, though, of course, the, the secularists could always claim that we're just appealing to a God-did-it right sort of miracle um, and that really the, 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 the God hypothesis, so to speak, is... Um, it's just a cop out, but it's really not. And I'm not. That's not the purpose of this podcast to really get into how all that works. Um, <clears throat> but this is not a God of the gaps type of argument here at all. This is this is what the Creator of the universe has revealed to us. Now let's start with that premise. Go with what He has said about the history of our Earth and interpret the world accordingly. And in that regard, 
if all land animals were made on day six, and if we can make a solid argument that the days are ordinary days, which um, many have done in the past, and we've spoke to that on numerous issue, on numerous um, occasions as well, well, then it appears that dinosaurs are just about 6,100 or so years old. And how you think about that is most certainly going to influence your interpretation of the evidence. So a few things here. Um, is there any evidence, then, of dinosaurs um, living alongside man? So that would be a good place to, to, to start. So what about fossil evidence? Well, this is an area where a lot of evolutionists say, gotcha. Right? Because we believe in a, a, a global flood. Of course, we'll get to that in a minute. The global flood, which um, destroyed all human life and all animal life, except for that which um, made it on the ark um, that God brought there. And so, inevitably, folks say, well, look, you know, um, we have never seen a, a, a dinosaur fossil and a human fossil together. So this is pretty clear evidence that at least suggests that dinosaurs and humans did not live together. Now, hopefully, you are um, seeing the fallacious nature of that argument. As a matter of fact, it's really a non sequitur. The conclusion simply does not follow from that premise. We see all the time scenarios, I, 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 you know, I, I don't know that we have ever seen, for example, a human and a bear fossil, for example, together. They live at, um, in different places. They, a lot of times, live in, in a completely different ecology. So, um, this is just not something that we would even expect to find. Um, especially once the fall happened and the curse took over the earth, um, the dinosaurs most certainly would have um, become hostile towards man. I mean, we're, we're not talking about, you know, especially after the curse, we're not talking about man riding dinosaurs around here. Um, you know, we've got all this um, death and disease and bloodshed in the fossil record. I mean, it appears that the curse really, really did a number on the pre-flood world. And... I see no reason to um, discount the fact that humans would likely separate themselves and it would probably would would defend against smaller dinosaurs if they were living in the same area. But I think they would want to separate themselves from dinosaurs as much as humanly possible, um, given the nature of the curse. So I, this is not um, simply not an issue. Now, the, the issue is even um, less of an issue when you figure out the fact that 95% of the entire fossil record that we have is tiny marine invertebrates. That's 95% of the fossils that we have. Of the remaining 5%, 95% of that group is marine fossil vertebrates. So suddenly, we're talking about a very, very small amount of higher animal fossils actually found in the fossil record. As a matter of fact, there are only 6,000 or so hominid fossils that have been found altogether. So considering this extremely limited number of higher animal fossils, which makes sense if you consider floodwaters rising. Of course, um, the lower animals and the marine animals will most certainly uh, be more subject to that rapid burial as higher animals could escape both to higher ground as the floodwaters um, rose. It's more likely that they could get away. Now, we certainly see cases where some were not able to escape. In fact, we see dinosaurs who were kind of in their death throes kind of position, and you could look that up. They were fossilized that way. Um, that's largely, um, almost totally inexplicable on a long age um, fossilization over time kind of view. Uh, but it makes perfect sense on a global flood view. So 
this is, again, something that we would not expect to find. Somebody can say, well, look, we don't see these together. Um, therefore, they did not exist at the same time. Uh, but again, that is a non sequitur. The, uh, the conclusion does not follow from the premises. Um, there is an explanation um, for why they would not be found together. A better explanation, I, in my opinion, for why they would not be found together other than the fact that they just aren't. And so, therefore our view is false. All right, so this is a scientific and logical way of looking at the information. Um, the fossil evidence in no way suggests that dinosaurs and man did not live alongside one another. Now, what about um, historical dragons? So here are a few things, um, and I, 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 I got these from um, Dr. Jason Lyle, wrote about this recently on his website, and so I just took uh, two, of, two of his facts of information here. He says that um, in 30, uh, excuse me, in 330 BC, after Alexander the Great invaded India, he reported seeing a dragon there which hissed and snorted loudly. The creature was said to measure over 70 cubits, which is 105 feet, and the local people worshipped it as a deity. The Roman author, um, Pliny the Elder, who lived in, from AD 23 to 79, also wrote about dragons. He states, quote, Africa produces elephants, but it is India that produces the largest as well as the dragon, who is perpetually at war with the elephant and is itself of so enormous a size as easily to envelope the uh, elephants with its folds and circle them in its coils, close quote. It's hard to imagine anything other than a dinosaur that could successfully engage in physical combat with an element. So, or excuse me, with an elephant. So it certainly suggests that um, there were animals living who, of course, they were considered dragons. Now, dragons are largely associated with mythology, but if you look... Um, there is um, all kinds of inscriptions and all kinds of things you can see that seem to suggest, and I'm not saying they're conclusive, some of them may even be fabricated, but I'm just saying there is a lot of information out there that does seem to suggest that man lived alongside dragons in history. And I think that that interpretation of dragons is best suited with what we know today to have been the dinosaurs. And in fact, many of these so-called dragons that were on um, um, hieroglyphs and things like that actually resembled what we think many dinosaurs looked like. So not saying that is knockdown drag, you know, you know, um, just just a knockout, for example, um, of evidence. Uh, but I most certainly think that it has something to say about the historical nature of dinosaurs being younger than previously thought. And speaking of that, um, is there any evidence that they're younger than previously thought from a scientific perspective? Now, of course, uh, one piece of evidence that we have historically, again, is the Bible. The Bible claims that there is no death before the fall. The Bible also claims that there is no um, eating of animals before the fall, only plants. And plants are not considered nefesh kaya, or, or the soulish animals um, in the Bible. And, and this is a claim that has been widely misconstrued, widely misused, unfortunately, by Dr. Hugh, Hugh Ross and many in that organization. Um, look, the Bible pretty plainly suggests that, especially in, in Genesis 1, 29 and 30, that prior to the fall, vegetation was the only kind of life that died. And there are multiple lines of evidence to glean that from the biblical data. The Bible most certainly seems to suggest that. Um, and, and to me, that's proved even just by the fact that after the flood, um, they were given permission to eat meat. So um, if, it's, if that was the case, then that must have meant that before the flood took place and all the way up through the creation that they were not explicitly permissed or, or, or permitted, I should say, to, um, to eat meat. So the point there is that the Bible certainly seems to suggest that there's no death before the fall, especially when we start looking at Romans um, 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I know that it is argued that there is no um, human 
death before the fall of sin only affects human death. And some scriptures, um, while they don't exclusivize it, some scriptures, that's really all that they suggest. But again, when you take the evidence as a whole across the whole Bible, evidence that we have from Genesis and evidence that we have from um, the New Testament where sin and death were tied explicitly to one another, um, it appears to me that you cannot reconcile the two. There was no death before the fall. Now, in light of that, that must mean that old age theory is not the case. If the Bible is 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 clear and we're interpreting that right, and I believe we are, then that means that old age theory cannot be the case. So, is there any evidence in light of that that dinosaurs are younger than previously thought? Well, sure. Again, we've already talked about this, but rapid burial provides confirmation of flood theory. Uh, we we don't ever see one of these new fossil discoveries come up, well, look at this dinosaur. It's been perfectly preserved. We never see these things come up. And the story attached to it that over millions of years, things were piled on top of it and, and, and it was fossilized that way. Almost in every case, they speak about some sort of local flooding event that was instrumental in the preservation of this fossil. And to me... You're only going to get so many of these in different areas before a global flood, to me, starts looking like the more probable cause. And so I think there is good evidence of that. Dr. Kevin Anderson, um, speaking on uh, dino tissue found in fossils, said this. In 2005, uh, I'm quoting, a group of researchers led by Dr. Mary Schweitzer uh, reported extracting pliable pieces of tissue from a T-Rex fossil. Within this tissue, they observed osteocytes, common cells found inside the matrix of bone. Even more surprising, they detected fragments of collagen, a common animal protein. Follow-up studies presented additional support for this discovery. And if you want to look at that, you can go to um, answersingenesis.org uh, slash fossils slash dinosaur dash tissue. And I'll put that in the show notes as well so you can so you can see that, see his article on that. And Dr. Kevin Anderson himself has been doing research um, on that uh, since that time. This is actually a main uh, area of his research, and he has written a book about this, although the name escapes me. Um, right now, but he's written a, a good book about this as well. So um, the article that I, I gave you just there also answers skeptics concerning written objections to these findings. And so that's going to be something that you should check out. So dinosaurs are, are, is there any evidence at all? Can we, is there a contradiction in the Bible if all animals were created on, um, of the land animals, like the higher land animals were created on day Six, is there a contradiction in what we see with the natural world? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think that in order to get the millions of years interpretation on the dinosaur fossils, you have to start with the premise that the earth is millions of years old. It's, it's ultimately circular reasoning. And... We have to make up extinction stories, and different extinctions, extinction stories for dinosaurs um, come to play at different times, and nobody really knows how it happens now, and there's probably about five or six different main theories that people hold on to, and maybe even more, but I think we have good evidence to suggest that um, the majority of the dinosaurs were wiped out during this global flood. Now, of course, we know that uh, dinosaurs, that means, also made it onto Noah's Ark. At least a couple of the dinosaurs did. Um, maybe there were a few different kinds of dinosaurs that, that made it on there. And so it's likely, <clears throat> um, and I don't think we have any problem with assuming that there were dinosaurs who lived after the flood, but it's likely that due to the different ecology, the, the completely changed world, not to mention genetic issues, um, and also the fact that, that humans just, it, it seems unlivable that a human could live beside a dinosaur. All those things taken into account provide plenty of evidence um, that for why we don't see the dinosaurs today. So what about then a deluge? Now, we've talked a lot about this concept of a global flood. And it appears to me, again, based on what we see also um, in, in the fossil record in general, and we're going to talk about this, um, it appears to me that a deluge is more probable than 
the millions of years timeline from a scientific perspective. Now, from a biblical perspective, we know that a global flood happened. So the question is then, um, what does that look like for us um, when we do science? In order to understand that question, we're going to have to understand probably the biggest struggle that we face when attempting to make our case for the young age of the earth and of uh, the universe in general. And of course, I'm speaking specifically here to this issue of catastrophism versus uniformitarianism. Now, catastrophism is the idea, of course, that uh, throughout earth history, there has been catastrophe responsible for the shaping of our world. And the truth of the matter is that this used to be the widely held view. Um, Uniformitarianism was a presupposition that came into play starting with um, Dr. Lyell. Now, we, we or excuse me, Dr. Hutton, um, I think was the first to, to deal with this. And we actually talked about this a little bit last week, and we're going to uh, look at that, uh, that part of it a little bit again um, uh, today when we get to the um, dating part, which actually, uh, we're probably going to split this into a two-parter, so we might uh, actually address that next week, and we're going to talk a little bit about the origin of this old age theory again, but just know the difference between the two, this idea of catastrophism versus uniformitarianism. Catastrophism says that the past is the key to the present. In other words, the present world that we have right now was shaped by the conditions, whatever they were, in the past. Whether that means a global flood, whether that means different catastrophes that happened over different geographical locations. Um, it's this idea that catastrophe has a large role in the reshaping um, of our world over time, however much time that may be. All right. And then uniformitarianism um, can be summed up in this, uh, this idea that you've heard, I'm sure, repeated quite often. The present is the key to the past. And what that simply means is that all present um, rates and processes are the way that they have always been in the past. Um, suggesting, of course, that if things move as slowly as they seem to move today, that this earth has been here for a while. And on a universal scale, that our universe has been here for a while. Now, what's interesting is that the Bible warns us about this philosophy. And notice that it's a philosophy. It's not scientific inherently. The uniformitarian assumption came into play hundreds of years before we could radiometrically date. Now, our radiometric dating today, and again, we'll talk about that next week, but our radiometric dating in this day, it it seems to suggest at face value these long ages that have been presupposed. Now, the thing is that in the 1700s, which is, I believe, when Dr. Hutton first came on the scene, they just did not have radiometric dating. So therefore, the long-age assumption had to come into play before we could prove it. So it's an assumption. It's a a philosophy. It is not inherently scientific. It did not begin that way. Now, 2 Peter 3 warns us of this. It says this, 2 Peter 3, starting with verse 2 and 2 verse 7, says that that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior, knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world was, being overflowed with water, perished. 
But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Here's the thing. They are in willful denial of the, of the creation, of the flood, and of the end times. All for obvious reasons. They're willfully ignorant of the creation because that means that there's a God who made the rules. They're willfully ignorant of the flood because that means there is an explanation for the world around us that fits biblical time scales and does not fit uniformitarian secular time scales and the secular history of the earth. And then they deny the end times and the coming judgment for pretty obvious reasons. So that's the difference between these two philosophies. And how you interpret the evidence will depend on which of these philosophies you subscribe to. Now, there are some who are kind of halfway in between. There are some who grant that catastrophe has indeed had a large um, uh, part to play in the history of the earth. But then for the most part, the uniformitarian assumptions are true, that the present rates and processes have always been the same as they are today. But see, if we have catastrophism on a global scale, if we have a global flood, then we could possibly make sense of having rates and processes that were a bit different. So let's look at a couple of these things. There was a flood model presented initially by Antonio Snyder Pellegrini. Now, uh, he was kind of the first to look at this uh, I, I, idea that unfortunately the secularists have stolen, but you know they call it Pangea. You're familiar with this. Now this um, flood model by Dr. Snyder Pellegrini was introduced in 1858. Now, it didn't get that much attention. And if you know anything about this debate, the creation-evolution debate, then you probably know why. But for those who haven't caught on yet, this was released in 1858. But Darwin's discovery was uh, released, The Origin of Species, in 1859. Needless to say, Darwin had the attention of the scientific community. Now, it's worth noting as well that Snyder Pellegrini was a creationist. He looked at the Bible. He saw from the Bible that it appears that the biblical data suggests that at one time all the continents were together. And he looks at a map and he says, hey, this makes sense. And he first theorized about what we know today as modern plate tectonics theory, but a rapid interpretation of it. He didn't suggest that it happened slowly over millions of years. He thought it happened quickly. In other words, what we call today continental drift, he might have thought of as continental sprint. Now, this theory was brought back and kind of shored up in, I believe it was 94, 1994, and it's called today, it's probably the, the most widely accepted flood model um, among creation scientists. And it's called catastrophic plate tectonics. And it's really an amazing theory. Um, plate tectonics in general has incredible explanatory power. Um, and catastrophic plate tectonics explains about double what regular um, plate tectonics conventional theory uh, does, which is really, really fascinating. Now, this was presented by Dr. Steve Austin, um, Dr. John Bob, uh, Baumgartner, um, Dr. Russ Humphreys, Dr. Andrew Snelling, Dr. Larry Vardaman, and Dr. Kurt Wise. Um, and so in that listing, you've got your physicists, you've got your geophysicists, you've got um, soft rock geologists, hard rock geologists, paleontologists. This is really a, um, a who's who, a, 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 a group who came together, each contributing their part to make sure that everybody kept each other grounded in their fields for the implications that this theory would have. And they developed this theory, and uh, it, it's, it's quite incredible. Um, um, it explains all of the uh, data, again, explained by conventional plate tectonics, um, as well as additional data, um, such as zones of cooler material reaching from the ocean trenches down to the bottom of the mantle, rapid magnetic field reversals in um, basaltic flows, the wide expanse of magnetic field reversals, the strength of the Earth's magnetic field through time, kimberlites and flood basalts, the rising of mountains due to rapid collisions, the existence of high-pressure, low-pressure minerals, etc. Now, um, is the flood model 
a useful model of Earth history? Now, this is a good question to ask because, again, if it's not, it might suggest that it is not the way that we should look at the world, even from a scientific perspective. So that's the question. Is this stuff scientific or not? Well, here's the thing. If conventional plate tectonics theory can, you know, explains 10 things and catastrophic plate tectonics theory explains 20 things, in, wrapping in the things that conventional theory explains, in scientific terms, that's a better theory. Why is it not the widely accepted theory of Earth history? Well, that's because it doesn't comport with the assumptions of uniformitarianism. So, in general, is it a useful model? Well, um, flood geology tends to provide a better explanation for other geologic observations, such as the abundance of well-preserved fossils and finely layered sediments, um, the large percentage of modern species which boast a fossil record, the tight folding of different sediment layers, periods of non-deposition between sedimentary layers, um, the geologic activity um, uh, such as the isostasy and earthquakes associated with mountains, um, etc., even more, right? So um, I, I think it is a useful model of Earth history. It explains um, many things. Now, the fossil order is also more consistent with a global flood. Now, this is really interesting. I got some of this information here um, from a presentation that Dr. Kurt Wise did uh, from the Is Genesis History Conference, and I, I, I very much suggest that you go out and get that. It's an incredible um, deal. It's only $10 for like 70-something creationist lectures, um, and I'm going to make a note to put that in the show notes um, so that you can go there and possibly purchase that. Um and uh, let me just write that down real quick. Put IGH conference in show notes. Yeah, I definitely want to put that out there for you um, so that you are able to see that. Now, conventional theory would predict rare, poorly preserved fossils. Flood theory would predict common, well-preserved fossils. The latter is consistent with the fossil record. What we find is common, well-preserved fossils among the different um, fauna that are in the fossil record. All right, now conventional theory would predict continuous change and divergence within the record. Flood theory, however, would predict stasis and abrupt appearance. Lo and behold, the latter is consistent with the fossil record. Stasis just means that we don't see lots of change over time. We see animals today, alive today, that we have fossil representations for that have not changed a bit in millions, hundreds of millions of years. Conventional theory would predict rare to common stratomorphic intermediates, um, which is essentially a, a fossil with intermediate position with respect to the rocks and form with respect to the organism. Stratomorphic intermediates in most groups. Rare to common. Now, flood theory would actually predict extreme rarity in most groups. Now, we find none in most groups. And it's extremely rare in the other groups that we do find some in. So, yes, I think that the flood model uh, that is widely held today by creationists is a great explanation um, for the data that we see around the world. And I also do think that it is a useful model of Earth history, the Bible notwithstanding. It just happens to be, in that sense, a benefit that the Bible tells us about this. Otherwise, this is a great scientific theory. Here's the thing. I think if the Bible didn't say it, this might be the well-accepted theory. Honest to goodness. I think the Bible's the holdup here. It's not accepted that way because this means the Bible would be true. Major objections to this. Now, shouldn't we shouldn't do the Bible, or we shouldn't do... Um, science, excuse me, based on the Bible, right? And that's kind of what we've been talking about. Shouldn't we do science on its own and then, you know, wait for it to line up with the Bible in some way? Now, in many ways, this is what old age theorists have done. Um, not in every case, but in, in, in many cases. All right, now, here's the problem with that, though. All science is based on the Bible, both practically and historically. All science 
is based on the Bible. That's because if God were not in place to uphold the laws of nature and to keep nature uniform, as suggested in um, Colossians, I believe it's 117, uh, might be 2-3, I can't remember exactly which reference. Also, Genesis 8, um, 22, I believe, seems to suggest this. Uh, Jeremiah 33, 25 seems to suggest, these. all of these things seem to suggest that, th- that God is upholding the universe. All things consist in Christ, Paul says in his letter to the Colossians. He upholds everything by the word of his power. So, science, the fact that we have uniformity of nature, the fact that tomorrow we're going to be living in a world that reacts the same to our testing as it does today, is because we live in the world that God created. There's no explanation for this on secular theory, on atheism, on naturalism especially. There's no explanation for this. The scientific method, and this is why, it was created by theists and creationists. There were Muslim scholars who had a lot to do with this, such as um, Al-Haytham, of course, um, Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton. These guys were creationists and the ones instrumental in developing the scientific method. Why? Because they realized the consistency of a creator. Prior to this, in the pantheistic worldviews in the Parthenon, which God would have you trusted to uphold the universe? Why assume that one God didn't have power over the other to just tear down what the other was doing? Um, there, 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 on no other worldview is the consistency there to suggest that there would be uniformity of nature other than a theistic worldview in general. And I would argue the Christian worldview, uh, but that's a, a, an argument for a different time. The second major objection is this, and after this we are going to cut it short for today. All right, now, the laws of physics may have changed during and around the flood year. Now, this is something that that, that we think is true because the, the radiometric dating um, seems to suggest that, again, the laws of physics have been constant ever since the creation of the world, whenever that was. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit more next time, all right? Um, but w- let's just assume that the laws of physics had to change briefly during the flood year. Or maybe something was different during the time of creation. Um, maybe that's where the difference in the dating happens. Maybe maybe it was somewhere either during during creation week or during the flood year where something was different about the laws of physics. Let's just assume that's the case. Is that a problem? Well, many people say yes. Dr. Hugh Ross has specifically pointed out, yes, that this is a problem. But here's the thing. Especially from an evolutionary perspective, this is special pleading. Special pleading. Why is it special pleading? Well, special pleading is when you apply a double standard. It's when you um, ask somebody else and their ideas to live up to a standard that your own ideas do not. So here's the thing. If our model of Earth history requires a change in the laws of physics at, 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 at one of two points in Earth history, is that a problem? I'm going to argue no. Of course, in a theistic worldview where we would expect the miraculous to be able to happen, that's not a problem, but I'm not even going to apply to that. I'm going to turn it back around and apply to science. On secular science, in order to have a universe, the first and second laws of thermodynamics must be violated and also the law of biogenesis. In order to have a universe at all, these laws had to have been violated. See, if you just give them one exception, they can have a universe. So if they can have their exception, which I think they require three at least, if they can have their three exceptions, I think I could have my one. So that, that to me, that objection is completely special pleading. It doesn't hold up. All right, the second thing we just mentioned that Ross actually uh, claims that God promised to uphold the laws of physics from the creation in Jeremiah 33. Here's what he says in 25 and 26. Thus saith the Lord, if my covenant be not with day and night, and I have, and if I have not appointed the ordinance of heavens and earth, uh, yeah, of heaven and earth, then will I cast away the seed of Jacob and David my servant, so that I will not take any of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captivity to return and have mercy on them. Now, Ross uses these verses to say that the laws of physics have been upheld from the beginning of creation. Now this, I'm sorry, but this is extremely poor hermeneutics. There is not a time frame in that verse. 
Jeremiah 33, 5, or excuse me, 33, 25 says, Thus saith the Lord, if my covenant be not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinance of heaven and earth. That does not give a time frame. Now, many Bibles cross-reference this with another verse, Genesis 8, 22. Now, isn't this interesting? This is right after the flood. Check this out. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, starting in Genesis 8, 20, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. Now notice this. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Ross's argument turns right against him because Genesis seems to suggest that he put this in place. He only promised to uphold all of these laws in the sense of that they would never change from after the time of the flood. Suggesting that these could have changed and even likely did change during the flood year as a result of the curse that was on man's ground uh, that was that was on the ground and of the fact that God smote every living thing. So what Ross thinks is a great argument for an old age position is actually a killer argument for the young age position. He doesn't account for the fact that the time that God has set this in place is only after the flood. That law, that rule of of God's promise to hold up the earth in that matter was not instituted until after the flood was finished. We're going to end this week on that note. Next week, we will um, look at the dating, and also we're going to look at Darwin, kind of see where we differ on those things, and I'm sure we'll do a little bit of a review. Uh, thanks for joining us this week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We want to say thank you so much for your goodness and for your grace, for your mercy. Father, thank you for loving us and for sending your son to die for us, and thank you for allowing us to study your your word and, and also to study your world. and. Thank you for making it so clear to us how they work together to complement one another. And pray that you would give us just a good week this week and help us to uh, to to seek you, Lord, and to uh, expect to find you in our daily walk um, throughout this next week and uh, until the next time we meet again. And we thank you for your goodness, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, I appreciate you joining me this week on the Creation Academy. Hope you guys have a good weekend. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye.